This week, we invite you to listen in on a conversation among your three co-hosts as Ryan Grant and I explore a ridiculously wide range of topics, including conspiracy theories, the value of suffering, what AI would look like if Jesus was a tech CEO, and whether capitalism made mountain climbing fun. You'll also find out what Ryan and Grant want most from the metaverse. That and a lot more on today's episode of the Beatrice Institute podcast. It seems like we're wandering between two worlds. Modernity as we knew it is passing away, and the next world, full of uncertainty, is yet to be born. Like the poet Dante, we find ourselves in a darkened wood, struggling to know how to think and how to live. Virgil guided Dante's journey through darkness with the light of reason, but then Beatrice illuminated his path to paradise with Christian revelation. Welcome to the Beatrice Institute podcast, where Christian faith and reason illuminate the best of academic thinking and research. How should we think and live in this time between worlds? At the Beatrice Institute, we take our bearings from the good, the true, and the beautiful. I'm Gretchen Huizinga. I'm a research fellow at AI and Faith and a principal investigator with the Beatrice Institute's project, Being Human in an Age of Artificial Intelligence. What makes humans special? And what does it mean to flourish on the frontier of a technological future? I've been thinking most about your stuff, Gretchen, just because I've mm. been listening to your stuff most recently. Man, I love the Derek Sherman episode. Isn't that good? You asked so many good questions. And the one that was most fascinating to me and that has me thinking all kinds of new thoughts and different frameworks is, will there be bugs in heaven? So, I mean, like, first of all, like his answer, he thinks there will be computers in heaven. Uh, yeah. And so if there are computers in heaven, will there be bugs? And, and he thinks, yes. Uh, that it will be part of human finitude, right? Well, I want to say, I think he framed that, that the reason there are bugs isn't because of the fall. And I don't know that he carried bugs into heaven. He was positing that there are bugs. And even if we were living in a a, a sin-free world, there would still be bugs because of our finitude. So he he separated fallenness and finitude. And so I don't know that once we get to heaven, if computers are a tool we use to explore and discover even more of the depths of God's creativity and amazingness, that that, that's what he's saying is that there's going to be tools that we use here that we probably might use there. So Right. And so just as our getting tired by running is not a result of sin in this world, but in heaven we will run and not be weary. So also then will there be a shift from finitude to a certain level of infinite capacity? That would ideally eliminate bugs. Yeah. And I feel like the whole there will be no more tears and no more sadness. You know, if you look at a computer bug, that makes you cry if you're a programmer. So I would think that it would be a purified, redemptive version of computers in heaven, as opposed to our, you know, I don't know. That's a really good question. Let me ask Grant a question. Can I? Can we just go like a pinball here? Because Grant, you had a podcast with a guy named Ted Castronova. And in it, you guys referred to what you call the laptop class. And I think we're hearing that phrase quite a bit as a new ruling class, because they are what I would call the quote unquote landowners of online products that we spend our lives using and increasingly depending on. 
And Mark Andreessen, the venture capitalist who kind of was the Netscape pioneer, refers to this group as the reality privileged. And they become VR apologists and uh, maybe even metaverse evangelists for the lower classes and the unwashed masses. Now, I want to tie this into, and maybe Ryan, you can speak into this as well. But in medieval times, there were three orders of society, those who fought, those who prayed, and those who worked. If the laptop class is now those who fight, like the nobility, what are the other two classes and how does that work? Do we kind of follow the same, even in a classless society, quote unquote, we still have classes. What do you think? Yeah. So I actually don't think that the classes will be so fundamentally different. I think that the um, that the distribution will change tremendously. And this is something that Gabe Winant and I talked about in our interview is the laptop class that we're talking about that will essentially you know be similar analogous to capital and you have a, a service class and this will make up the majority or a substantial portion of employment right the folks that wash the clothes and care for you when you're sick but what will be missing or what will grow will be sort of the surplus population the folks where there's no meaningful employment because what's happening in contemporary economy is there's this disconnect between industries that make a lot of money right? You think about tech and the industries that employ, right? For the amount of money Google makes, they employ very, very few people. Right. So I think that ultimately you'll still have this sort of capitalist class, the laptop class, you know, be different than Andrew Carnegie, but it'll be similar in its, in its power and abilities. And you'll still have a service sector. But what I think will shrink mightily are, is employment in non-service industries. And I think that we really are facing a moment in which we're not quite sure what to do with all these folks that used to be in manufacturing and other similar industries and now have really no meaningful opportunities for employment. So I don't know how that matches up on the, the taxonomy that you created, but I think that those are fundamentally... And, and folks in sort of the university and in government, I see those sort of as part of the laptop crowd, even though they're mm -hmm. not part of tech and don't necessarily own capital in the way that, you know, the CEO of Google will. But I think they're sort of fundamentally a part of the same sort of class. Yeah. Let me throw in that those who pray portion, because it was the nobility, the clergy, and the peasants, right? Ryan, you can confirm nodding your head. Yeah, yeah, um, definitely. Where does the those who pray fit in, in this culture? Are there any? <laughs> well... What Ted Castronova and I talked about is those that pray will certainly be smaller, but I think in many ways they'll be much more dynamic and creative. And I mean, particularly not in creative in the economy, but creative actually procreatively, right? right. I do think that there will be a community of religious people who have committed themselves to prayer and to living outside of the structure we just talked about, having children mm. and praying and living lives of creation in that way. Yeah. I mean, what's interesting is that the, as far as I know, the first person to formulate that three estates theory in the Middle Ages was uh, Alfred the Great, this English king in the uh, end of the ninth century who puts it in the context of this political theory that begins with the question of God has given us creation. Now, what do we need to do to cultivate it? Right. And specifically, he's like, God has given me this, this land, this creation as the <laughs> king. And so what do I need to cultivate it? Well, I need to have it needs to be cultivated in these three ways, essentially. Yeah. And so that's where the those three estates come in or, well, or three classes. The Romans also had the senators, soldiers, and plebes, right? So there's some some form of that. And maybe we're trying to retrofit it too much and 
go too far with it, but it really did strike me that in your podcast, Grant, with Ted, that these the online product owners are the ones who are engoggling and engrossing us in this, you know, goggles in a chair or chair and a screen mentality. And I guess we can leave the the three orders of society out of it and just talk maybe for a second about this idea of the reality privileged, like Mark is a huge investor in Meta, which is Facebook, and it behooves him to make sure that people can go into these virtual worlds and experience the beauty of a gated community or a vacation in Fiji or whatever when they couldn't otherwise. And that would make their lives better and happier, but they would still be sitting in a chair and also seeing online advertisements, which would support these metaverses. The whole idea of, of product placement gets a huge boost. So what are your thoughts on how we should respond to that? Because it's a thing they're pushing and the metaverse is all over the place in brands in terms of advertising. Yeah, well, I mean, I don't think we actually do need to leave behind the framework of the three estates because it draws a helpful contrast between the different ways you can approach these problems. So on the one hand, you can approach them beginning from reality as gift. Hmm. And then the question is, you know, how are we stewards of the gift of reality or creation as gift, right? And I think when, you know, when we have these economics, modern economic conversations, we're not beginning from there, right? We're be- we're beginning from, well, capital. I mean, we're beginning from the analysis is capital and labor. That's the starting point. And then what that means then is that this idea of surplus people, hmm. you know, a, a, a properly Christian creation-oriented political theory wouldn't view those people as surplus people, right? They would have value in ways that exceed their economic value. Well, and that goes back to Ebenezer Scrooge in A Christmas Carol, who said, we can decrease the surplus population. That was his big line. Did he when say he still, Yeah, when he was still a Scrooge. And yeah, when, he, he when he didn't want to give money to uh, charity, exactly. that was one of his yeah. arguments. Is, yeah. Uh, very, very Are there no prisons? Thing. Are there no workhouses? I love your phrase, stewards of the gift of reality, Ryan. There's a thousand ways to go about that. Anyway, what else do you got? Well, I do really like that, the phrase that you used or that Mark Andreessen used. In fact, he was just interviewed by Tyler Cowen. It was a very good interview. I listened to it, yeah. Yeah. And this, it was reality privilege. Is is that the word that he uses? I mean, it is very interesting. We look over the history of modern society. There's all these things that capital gives to labor, if we want to continue on that analogy, or or power gives to the people. That there are things that are offered to free them and make them free, but which the laptop class has absolutely no interest in. So we think, you know, as Christians, we often talk about birth control and the breaking of the nuclear family, right? So we always hear that by breaking the nuclear family, women are now free, but it just as though seems that the vast majority of upper middle class women get married right. and have children and maintain nuclear families. And it becomes a privilege then to have this family that was for everybody in, you know, 1930. And I think a similar thing exists here. I heard your question more, uh, what do we do from, at least from a political and social perspective? And I honestly really don't know. I mean, all of the instruments of power and money are behind establishing this very society that you're that you're talking about. Right. And I do think it's particularly incumbent on Christians to create these, to think very, very hard about how do we live within this sort of 
relatively apocalyptic reality where we'll have a very tremendous concentration of money and a reality privileged class that... Right. Well, and and the irony here to me is that as you sit in your gated community or whatever you want to call it, you are thinking of how you could bequeath the lower classes with some semblance of yours, but at the same time, you're making money off of that very offering. And so I feel like as Christians, we need to call out that irony and and also like going back to Ryan's delightful phrase, the stewards of the gift of reality, lobby hard that reality. Well, this actually segues into a question I have for Ryan. Can I just go there? Sure. Sorry, I say um, way too much. People are using technology as a means of relieving or eliminating human suffering and enhancing so-called human flourishing. So, and that's a big selling point of AI these days, but Christian theology, as you know, and, and talked about in a recent podcast, Ryan, clearly embraces suffering as a means to many virtues, including like compassion and charity. And historically, we see Christian revivals happening in times of suffering. So, When we're looking at people who are trying to use technology as a means of eliminating it, how would you sell the art of suffering well to a modern audience? And how might we rethink some of our technological goals that seek to eliminate it? Well, first of all, I I think it's, you know, an absolute fantasy that suffering is going to be eliminated. Even supposing that gene therapy is invented such that we never experience any kind of sickness or or the deleterious effects of aging, there's still psychological suffering. Mm. I mean, there's this very interesting book that I just started by Leah Greenfeld, and uh, it's on psychiatry and the cultural causes of the three major psychiatric um, disorders, schizophrenia, bipolar, and major depressive disorder. And she talked about speaking with her students about suffering in class, these undergraduate students at NYU, you know, super sharp students, and telling them about the reality that, you know, prior to modern medicine, most people just lived in constant pain. (laughs) (laughs) It wasn't always from the same source, but, you know, there's toothache, there's, you know, the older you get, the more pain, and and you get old much more quickly. And her students' response, she said, was that, well, they weren't actually feeling pain. They just got used to it. Because, To them, it's impossible to imagine living in a sustained way with pain. And then she said, do any of you know someone who has been in the depths of despair Hmm. or felt so anxious they couldn't leave their room? And like almost all hands in the room went up. And she said, are those people living continuously with pain? And then they're all like nodding their heads. And mm-hmm. so, so even if we are able to, you know, technologize all of the material causes of suffering out of existence, there's still going to be ourselves and potential abyss of suffering. And so that's why Christianity is always going to be necessary because it is one of the few religions that proposes suffering not as a good in itself, but as a path through participation in Christ's own suffering to ultimate happiness. So that's that's why I feel confident to say that there's no intrinsic good to suffering or to death. Mm-hmm. But what do I mean, Gretchen, my 
So you have just completed your doctorate. Congratulations. Mm -hmm. Thank you. A PhD, and it is a qualitative study of AI technologists and professionals who also are Christians. Mm -hmm. I mean, how many hours of interviews did you do for this? It turned out to be 21 hours. I had like 250 pages of single-spaced raw interviews. <laughs> ridiculous. Wow. Wow. I'll go ahead and jump in there. Yeah. So a related question, I think I, as I read the abstract from your dissertation, one thing did come to mind. Hmm. So if someone with a thoroughly Christian worldview became the CEO of Google, what would be the first thing they would change? Hmm. That's a great question. Yeah. No, I even addressed this in my dissertation. In fact, on the sort of applied thoughts and reflections, let's call it what would Jesus do, applying a what would Jesus do filter. And I, out of the gate, addressed profit and power as the two things that sort of drive the tech industry today. And so it would be more if the Silicon Valley ethos is to chase after killer apps or unicorns, you know what that is, right? The unicorn is the the app that comes out and becomes a billion dollar thing that maybe we should be thinking of chasing righteousness instead of ROI. So that was one. And then this quest for power. And we've kind of alluded to that earlier with in light of the, you know, the laptop class being the one who control everything because everyone has to use their stuff, just like the railroads and, and the robber barons of the, of the other times. So the chase after profit and power would be set second or third or fourth or even way, way down the list. And then I, I kind of dug in on righteousness and what that looks like in God's economy versus our economy. I, I don't have to go way into it, but I think those are the things that you know, I didn't use Google, but I did say if, if Jesus was the CEO of a tech company, what would it look like? So, hmm. so one thing. And I'm interested in your thoughts on this. I think what drastically changed the industry is making it a paid product where yes. people have to pay for the services that they want. Yes. You know, in many ways, Google functions like the Matrix. We've, Brian and I have been talking about the Matrix a lot as we're getting together. People become the battery. Like their, mm -hmm. their information exhaust becomes the battery that powers Google. And then, then they become, they're used as opposed to the product serving the human person. I think the first thing that a Christian could do is charge for the service. That seems counterintuitive, yeah. but I actually think that might be the most important move. No, 100%. And in fact, Jaron Lanier was on Barry Weiss's podcast, and he's the guy who wrote You Are Not a Gadget. He worked for Microsoft Research. He's got, you know, dreadlocks, and he was a virtual reality pioneer who wishes he wasn't now. And Who Owns the Future is another one of his books. And he says the same thing, Grant, is that if we didn't have this hidden transaction going on, you know, your data for my services and a binary choice, you either accept and give me everything you've got, including your photos, your life, your purchases, et cetera. But instead you had to pay for it and I didn't get all this other stuff. That would really be a good first step. But right now it's so lucrative and people, you know, I hate to generalize. No, I actually love to generalize because it's so much easier. But people don't really know what they're giving, what the value of what they're giving. And so they consider it a free app. And the idea that you'd have to pay for it is is crazy. Well, let me let me throw that one back on you, Grant, because in terms of healthcare, and I know a lot you've given a lot of thought to the models of healthcare and how it's connected to employment and the idea that, you know, in the 30s. My mom, for example, was a the fourth of fifth chil five children, and her dad died when she was three. 
and they didn't have medical care. It was single mom, five kids in the depression. And basically their church helped them out. There was a doctor in the church who did things for them and didn't charge them. There's no way they could have afforded it. And then you get all these other different models. The biggest one being insurance Mm -hmm. for medical care linked to employment. So I would wonder back to you, what if we did away with medical insurance and had a a marketplace where you'd know what you were paying and you could say, no, I don't want to pay that. I'll go to somebody cheaper or whatever. Yeah. So, you know, my students ask me this from time to time. I teach a a healthcare finance course. So one real challenge is market dynamics don't work super well in healthcare. There's an old paper guy by a guy named Ken Arrow in the 1960s arguing for why medical care is very, very different. It's different for a number of reasons. So one is like the classic insurance market problem. One is that uh, healthcare is relatively unexpected. Like you don't know when mm. you're going to have a heart attack. Now there's some exceptions like for long-term, you know, chronic diseases and things like that, but it's relatively unexpected. It's exceedingly expensive, mm. right? It doesn't have to be that way, but it is. That's mm. the reality. So it's expensive and your price inelastic, which means that if you need it, you need it and you're going to get it. Mm. So that's the type of product that insurance markets form around, right? Because you can't really save for it. I suppose you could, but you can't really. In the same way, you can't save for this unexpected event that your car crashes, right? Right. So that's a big that's a big difference. Also, there's an intermediary, right, who mm-hmm. has tremendous financial interests in inducing demand for healthcare that you may or may not need. And this is one of the biggest things that hospitals do and providers do is they induce demand. So all these great studies that show that in areas where there's more cardiologists controlling for like the underlying age and illness level of people in that community, there's more bypass surgeries Mm -hmm. because they're cardiologists, well, cardiovascular surgeons, and that's what they do. So you don't actually know what you need, right? So you go to a physician and he or she says to you, well, you need a bypass surgery. And like, oh, geez, I don't know anything about this. Maybe I need a bypass surgery. And so you just sort of trust them. I guess I could see a scenario in which you go to another cardiologist and say, this other guy told me I need a bypass. Will you undercut his price by 12%? But it's just different than like being able to walk into Best Buy, see a television, see how much it is, yeah. and then go to Costco because you know you want it and you know you need – well, you don't really need a TV. Actually, you don't need a TV at all. But say <laughs> you did need the TV. But you could go and shop for it. So, so I think healthcare is just a, a very different product than, say, televisions or cars. And for those reasons that, that I was just enumerating. All right. Well, let me, let me push back and say the context yeah. in which I was thinking of it is – We've got this model already for free apps Mm. all over my phone, right? Mm -hmm. And they're not free. They cost a lot. They're billion-dollar companies. So if everyone's using them for free, how are those companies making their money? We know the model. And what you've suggested, which I think is really a good way to go, is to flip that model. And instead of having these other avenues of revenue be the primary ones, but we're used to it now. Mm-hmm. And what I guess I was suggesting is that because we're used to insurance covering things, it's it's completely opaque to me how much I'm paying for a simple office visit. Sure. And that insurance has enabled that. Yeah. That's my, my question. So I, I do think that there are actually particular types of uh, care that are amenable to sort of market mechanisms that you're describing. Mm-hmm. So you like LASIK, right? That's a really good example. You don't really need LASIK. Mm. You know, it's nice. Yeah, but you have you wear glasses. It's not you're, you're pretty price elastic because if you went in for LASIK tomorrow, they told you it's going to be a million dollars. You're like, eh, <laughs> no thanks. And it's expected. You you kind of, your you know your eyesight's deteriorating, and so there are these services that I think are actually amenable to markets like yeah. like LASIK, for example. 
and those ones are are being treated this way. Yeah. So it doesn't have to be insurance, but I do think that there has to be some sort of risk pooling agency for those things that are again very expensive, unexpected, and, and very catastrophic. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And and I'm very open to those sorts of models where you have so for example, like concierge primary care, where you pay forty mm-hmm. bucks a month, you get your primary care services, and then you have a high deductible plan above that for when you get hit by a bus on Fifth <laughs> Avenue in, in Oakland. <laughs> So those sort of things are do exist. There's there are a number of interesting, innovative mechanisms, but none of them have seemed to bear much fruit in terms of reduced costs. Now, right. one thing are health insurance, like these health insurance sharing ministries. I don't know if you're familiar with these, oh. but these are plans that historically they're for evangelical Christians who had uh, theological concerns about health insurance, right? Because it right. under it destroyed the uh, the virtue of you know yeah. uh, mercy, caring, right? Caring for, your for others, exactly, yeah. right. And so what ended up happening is after the Affordable Care Act, Obamacare, they became qualified health insurance plans that you could mm. get in order to not have to buy private health insurance. And they boomed. They went from like 100,000 members. I'm going to get these numbers wrong. So someone will have to fact check me. From like 100,000 <laughs> members to like a million members in five years. Wow. Right. And they're actually super low cost. And they're predicated on people sharing expenses, mm-hmm. but in a, in, that's grounded in mercy, not in contract. Right. Right. So those are very interesting. And I think that they're innovations, but all like the power of sources, like they get flayed in the New York Times. The, the sure. New York Times had these series of hit pieces on these health insurance exchanges, sort of making fun of them as yeah. these like weird, fringy Christian things. So I, I do think that there's little places where people are experimenting with with new forms of healthcare delivery, the new innovations that hopefully reduce costs. But they're very fringe. But yes, I think yeah. there can be a reimagination. And I think one reimagination is I don't have to live forever. That's like a real imagination oh, of the healthcare industry that yes. I don't have to live forever. And, you know, I just, oh. but of course the incentives are not aligned with, you know, the physician is always going to induce more and more demand for these sort of end of life services and things like that. Right. Which speaks to this idea of safetyism and a book I read called Being Mortal that talks about why we extend life just for the sake of extending life. Right. Right. For Atul one day, I assume you're... Yes. Be mortal. Yes. In part, my mom made me read it because my dad has Alzheimer's and there was all of this attempt to keep dad safe. Right. And he, he is in a place now where he is, we're paying for people to keep him safe. But that's a huge question in terms of what our expectations are. And I think technology has played a role in this medical technology for sure is we can keep people alive artificially for a long, long time. And it goes back to what you said, Ryan, earlier, well, you said people lived with pain. They also died earlier, you know, of cancer that they didn't know or couldn't get treatment for because there was no catastrophic fund for that. So... Yeah. Yeah. And also something to keep in mind too is that I, I don't want to under downplay the amazing advances in, in healthcare. The te- right. For instance, the bypass surgery and uh, revascularization for heart attacks has saved so many millions of lives and has increased life expectancy, et cetera, et cetera. Huge increase in life expectancy as you know, you sort of get these sorts of technologies. But really once you sort of, there's this tremendous marginal, uh, reducing marginal return on investment, right? Mm-hmm. So, you know, like washing your hands is the best thing you can do to increase life expectancy, have indoor plumbing and that sort of thing. <laughs> and then some early medical technologies, but now we're really working on the, on the sort of edges. And, and, and maybe there'll be this emergent technology that radically changes life expectancy again. 
But I think we have every reason to believe that we're at sort of the top of that return and mm. we wouldn't really expect any... It seems as though the, the maximum life expectancy we're getting pretty close to, right? Yeah. And we sort of asymptoted towards what we could probably achieve. I love that phrase. Listen, I want to throw a Ray Kurzweil quote to both of you on this same line. In The Singularity is Near, he posits that in the near future, not too distant future, whatever Ray considers that to be, humans will be able to live as long as they want. And then in parentheses, he put a subtle distinction from forever. Right. Like at some point in your long as you wantness, you're going to hang up your spurs or whatever. Okay, I'm done on the planet. Which I don't see happening, I, you know, although I don't know. And plus, it's not going to be that way. But in terms of, of this idea, when is long enough, long enough? You know, no one's going to argue that you would not give somebody a bypass surgery if you can afford it, if it will save their life or work on a technology that would cure a major disease like Alzheimer's or cancer. And so this is where I think we, we sit on that razor's edge of what Ryan alluded to. When are we satisfied with a good life well lived versus this idea of safetyism and medicalism keeping us alive longer and longer and longer? There's also an act of generosity that goes into this as well, where a generation of people say, you know, we've we've lived long enough. Now it's give the younger people the opportunity to, right. to flourish, right? Like, I think there's something to that as well. There's something interesting that current generation wants to live forever, but does not want to have children. Mm. That's really interesting. Like we want to save the planet for us, mm. not to bequeath it as a generous gift to someone else, but so that we can enjoy it forever. Wow. But that didn't answer your question exactly. Kind of did. Yeah. I mean, it's, I think the, it becomes very dangerous to frame life questions in terms of quality of life mm. uh, because, and because that's where, on the other hand, we get the push for the legalization of euthanasia mm. where, and so quality of life is again, the, um, the deciding factor. Mm. And, you know, if, if your life is poor quality, then maybe you want your, your partner to put an end to it. Mm. And so and then on the other hand, if you are able to eliminate obstacles to flourishing, then we could just live forever. And so right. something is missing there in that analysis. And it seems like part of it is just a very material... Well, you, you said this in, in your conversation with Derek Sherman. It's a very materialist, reductive understanding of the human and therefore mm -hmm. a reductive understanding of human flourishing and therefore a reductive understanding of quality. Right, right. right. Let's switch streams for a second. Ryan, I have a question for you. In your podcast with Brad Gregory, which was great, he mentioned a book called Science and the Good, The Tragic Quest for the Foundations of Morality. And you hadn't heard of it, neither had I, but I immediately Googled it and then bought it because it sort of really tied into my my dissertation's idea that we've been appealing to science rather than God in terms of moral decision-making. Algorithms are making a lot of our decisions and they're driving the bus toward making more and more moral decisions in terms of using technology because it's more efficient and more data-driven and so on. But in the book, Ryan, the authors, there's two of them, say the quest for a scientific foundation for morality maps roughly onto the story of modernity. 
a story of the shrinking world in ways that bring us in closer proximity to different cultures and different ways of life. And so they talk a little bit more about competing claims on the public space and who gets to decide what's right and wrong and how we do that when we bump up against cultures in a highly technical world where, you know, it's immediate, right? These affordances of technology that cause us to have to question more about what we thought was right and wrong. So let me ask you this. Is it getting harder to agree on morality because of the onward march of modernity and its embrace of technology? Yeah. Well, I mean, one of the major shifts, if you go from a predominantly theistic society that locates the good in a natural order that's designed by a creator, Mm -hmm. um, if you go from that to a, you know, this isn't widespread, but it's common enough that it makes for, I mean, you said, is it it more difficult to agree? So it makes it more difficult to agree. And the widespread view that morality is imminent, right? So it comes from, from us, from the subject. And, you know, even this isn't Kant, but, but I think the sort of baseline Kantianism that you get in a typical college student, it is deontological, right? So there is this sense that I have a a moral duty to do what is right, to conform to the law. But where is the law coming from? Well, the law is ultimately what I decided to be, right? So so if if you move into into that sphere and and into a sphere where where science itself doesn't have doesn't claim a moral status in the sense of seeking the good. It only claims a moral status in, in having the, the most, the technocratic solution uh, mm-hmm. to our problems, then yeah, we're going to really struggle to, um, to come to agreement. But this is not to say that, for example, in the Middle Ages, in Europe, that they were characterized by profound moral agreement. Um, right. No, there was constant disagreement, but there was an underlying agreement over what are the things that we're fighting over. Go in there. like If there's a common understanding that, to go back to our economic conversations, that creation is gift, and therefore economic activity must be a kind of stewardship, then the question becomes, uh, is the charging of interest what was called usury, yeah. is is this a way to be a good steward of our economic resources, or is it in fact an abuse? Yeah. And but the you know the basic understanding of of where property and where money comes from to begin with is is there so you can have vigorous arguments about this. Mm-hmm. Well, and one of the um, in light of this, one of the questions that came up during my dissertation work revolved around a paper called Delphi towards machine norms and morals. I don't think that's the the actual title. It's but towards machine norms. And they crowdsourced 1.7 million moral responses from a Reddit feed. Can I say a cuss word on here? Am I the asshole is the name of the the feed. And also from <laughs> Dear Abby. Um, I'm not kidding. So 1.7 million answers and they fed it into a you know, an algorithm and asked this machine, this Delphi, this Oracle questions about what was right and wrong. So, I mean, you can find that online because it immediately got slammed and confounded with their, you know, demo site, much like the, the chatbot Tai Tai or Tai from Microsoft. But the, the underlying thing is that we could find 
some moral agreement via technology and use in, instead of appealing to God or the transcendent, we appeal to Google and humanity, right? To a common morality, a common underlying morality. Really? Yeah. So that was the hypothesis. Absolutely. Uh, well, I would say they didn't say out of the gate, this is what this is going to do. It's a proof of concept for a run at the hill at this, right? Yeah, great. Could, could we have enough moral, but they absolutely framed it. We're not going to appeal to the transcendent. This is all sort of cultural and current, right? So questions about sexuality, questions about gender, questions about abortion were all based on, you know, what's currently legal. And so, and, and also the permutations, you'd have one that said, you know, is it okay to drive a car? Sure. The machine says, well, is it okay to drive a car if it's stolen? Okay. Maybe not so much. Is it okay to speed while you're driving a car? No. Well, what if you're, you know, taking someone to the hospital who's dying? Okay. Maybe so. So it, it had some permutations to it, but again, it's sort of that oracular appeal. Well, yeah. I mean, it, se it seems like one assumption there is that humans are basically good. Mm. And so if we throw enough data, enough data of human judgments, at a problem, we're going to, you know, the mean of that is going to tend towards right action and right, right judgment. Yeah, absolutely. And, I mean, this, this this is really, I, it seems to me, one of the big existential crises in Silicon Valley right now is that the default anthropology, moral anthropology, is that humans are basically good. Mm -hmm. And yet what we've seen in so many contexts on, on social media is that when you don't censor a lot of bad stuff happens, right? And so how do you, you know, how do you square that? And the algorithm becomes evil and makes the people yeah. more evil, which makes the algorithm even more evil. Right. So there's, yes, there's it's yeah. a cycle of vice. Right. Yeah. And the, you know, this is, this is what I, going back to your dissertation research, one of the things I wanted to ask you, I mean, it's uh, young technologists are keenly aware that there is a lot of structural evil built into the tech world. And one of our Beatrice Institute Christian Studies fellows this year was talking with our colleague James DeMassey, and you know, and he, and he was asking them something like, you know, what what would what would be a course that you don't see being offered that you would just love to love to take? And she, you know, she's a a computer engineering major, specializes in machine learning. And she said, I would love to take a course called, how are we not going to ruin the world? Like, how can we do what we're doing without ruining the world? Yeah. You know, that's a very different orientation from probably even just 10 years ago, yeah. um, that a 20-year-old with, you know, the most yeah. marketable skills in the world, that that's their main concern. Are you finding that? How, how do you, how do you, the people you're interviewing how do they think about the work that they're doing? Is, is that a concern or is this a generation where they're still oh pretty gosh. much like we're going to solve things? And Listen, I this is a whole other podcast in terms of what I found in the study. And, and the dissertation is really interesting, if I do say so myself. My committee consisted of an atheist, an agnostic, a Buddhist and a progressive Christian, which sounds like a you know, an entree to a bad joke, but they walk into a bar or a committee, but, but they were universally interested and in, in intrigued by the responses of ethics and AI and how they're separated. In fact, even at Christian universities and Catholic institutions, Catholic universities, they don't have courses that should be 
informing the people who are making these online products that we're all using about what general thinking about ethics is, even if you took the deontological utilitarian virtue ethics versus Christian ethics. This is where one of the guys on my committee is the chair emeritus of the computer science program at the University of Washington, brilliant scientist. And he sat in the dissertation and said, there's nothing. We don't have any courses about this. Now, that's a big, difficult to get into university that does computer science. And I did a, you know, I asked that question of the guy at Notre Dame, the guy at Santa Clara. I asked Derek that question. I asked a guy from Middlebury who teaches computer science. And they all say the same thing. We may tack on a day in class where we talk about the ethical implications of things, but that doesn't make us moral people or virtuous people. So this is a huge gap. But here's what's fascinating. What resonated was Jesus in my dissertation. I mean, he's it's a Christ-forward dissertation at a secular university, which is bizarre and miraculous in and of itself. There's God knocking down the walls of Jericho. That's what resonates, the love of Christ, the acknowledgement of spiritual evil and human sin that needs to make it into the AI product roadmap. You can't you can't divorce it saying, well, if just the right people are in charge, it'll all be okay, because Christians know that's not true. So, and also anchoring it in the transcendent and dealing with not just data provenance, like where did the data come from that trained these these models, but ethics provenance. Where did it come from? Who do we appeal to when we're asking what's right or wrong? And if it's simply humans, the material worldview, then you have this shifting sand. And, and as C.S. Lewis puts it, we're surprised when we castrate and bid the gelding be fruitful. So I don't want to go off there because here's what I want to know. Grant, you sent me some questions that you were going to ask Ryan. Yeah. And I actually want to know Ryan's responses to him. So I'm going to pass the baton <laughs> okay. over to you. It's so funny. I was literally just about to interrupt and say, hey, Ryan, I got a couple of fun questions for you. No, I want to hear those. Right. So go, you guys. So here's the first one, Ryan. What is one conspiracy theory that you find uncomfortably convincing? <laughs> Isn't this from like some kind of psychological questionnaire? It could be. I might have also gotten it from Tyler Cowen. Yeah, that's right. That's right. I knew I had heard that recently. Yeah. uh, I've been taking psychological questionnaires and listening to Tyler Cowen at the same time. You know, this, I mean, the one that comes to mind right now is, well, I don't know. So I I guess the thing is, is that I do not, I think that I'm constitutionally allergic to conspiracy theories. And because what what conspiracy thinking requires is that a lot of people are doing a lot of things with uh, sinister motives Mm -hmm. and they're colluding together. And I, despite the fact that I, you know, take a very sober Christian view of human depravity, such as it is, I don't find that it's possible for all of these people to be working with sinister motives. They're actually all, for the most part, operating with their own vision of what's of what's good. And, you know, as we just discussed, Gretchen, especially in a hyper pluralist society mm-hmm. like ours, late modernity, with all of these people with their different competing visions of the good, it's going to be very difficult for them to collude together. So that's why I think I, uh, whenever I come across a conspiracy theory, I just don't 
find it likely. What, what's more likely to me, but, but I'm still very suspicious of, are genealogies of modernity. You know, these big stories, you know, like the Leah Greenfeld one that I was uh, that I was talking about. You know, that the emergence of the nation state is the cause of schizophrenia. Hmm. You know, like these. <laughs> you know, that that's it's not a conspiracy theory because it doesn't impute motives to individual people. But nevertheless, it it says here's this unseen cause of something that we that we have today. But the genealogies of modernity project itself is built to interrogate those narratives and not to take them as explanatory by default, but to investigate them and say to, you know, where are they helpful for understanding reality? Where are their limitations? Right. So it's interesting. It's almost as if you're saying, going back to what you said about this conspiracy theorist, is it so sinister that no one can even conspire together because we're all working at such cross purposes that conspiracy isn't even possible. It's a 4D chess thing. Yeah, right. I mean, maybe, nobody's maybe, that smart. Maybe it would be possible in a different society. Yeah, you know, in some of the writing Paul Kingsnorth has been putting out recently, that you know he talks about progress, and he says it's so sinister because there's no one directing it; that it's just moving like this machine that has no pilot. And so there's no conspiracy, but there's this natural progression of the world that, and he argues it's it's especially evil because there is no conspiracy because there's nowhere there's no way to stop it. There's no way to stop the conspiracy. But don't wouldn't you go back to Ephesians chapter six and say you know there is actually a conspiratorial force that's spiritual, and so even beyond our own abilities to be sinister. There is a sinister force that seeks to influence us. Yeah, as a matter of fact, I mean, and that's where King Smorth goes, is the spiritual reality of of what he sees to be so evil. He's particularly concerned about global warming and the uh, advancing surveillance state. And he started re- referring to it as Moloch, you know, this evil yeah. demonic force that that we can't see, but is is advancing in this deeply sinister way. That's the conspiracy theory that I find most compelling. I agree with you. That yeah, and, that the, and, that the devil and, is at work. Yes, yeah. yeah. Well, well, conspiring that, with demons. You know, I mean, this this <laughs> goes back to what I think ultimately is is just um, a terrible and and heretical view of the spiritual world, but has some very true and compelling aspects to it, which is the Frank Peretti books. Um, I don't this know. This present you, darkness. This present oh, yeah. darkness. Yeah. Oh my. The God. most poorly written, compelling novel I've ever read. I read that when I was like nine years old. My parents were like, oh, it's a Christian novel. He should read it. Yeah, it's um, crazy. And it terrified me and it, and it warped my sense of the supernatural world for many years. Poor <laughs> 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 well, Ryan. But, but what I think is clear there is that, you know, if, if there is a kind of politically engaged, economically engaged, mass psychologically engaged conspiracy of principalities and powers to bring about the things that we see in the world that we don't like. At the same time, there's also the conspiracy of the angels. Yes. And, you know, in communion with the saints who don't make it into produce vision and in communion with, with all of um, right. all of the living church in, in prayer. Yeah. And, which and which so, the gale, gates of hell shall not prevail against. Right. And so that's also, as I take it, inconsistent with conspiracy theories, which never have anything close to a balance between competing conspiracies and, <laughs> you know, and, and, in the, and in this and in this case, you know, we we think the good guys are winning anyways. Yeah. Grant, you have at least some more that I want to yeah. know Ryan's okay. answer to. So go on. Yeah. Uh, so, Ryan. 
What's one of the biggest disagreements that you and I have about the nature of political and social life in contemporary America? We talk a lot. Yeah. I mean, I think the biggest disagreement, which is whether big business, corporate America, major aspects of what Paul Kings North would would call Moloch, is whether those are unmitigated evils Mm -hmm. or whether they are an aspect of very complicated, mixed, but nevertheless potentially good system that can create spaces for human flourishing Mm -hmm. under the conditions of modernity. And that latter would be my position, which I'm, you know, beginning to doubt more and more (laughs) as the as the months go by. <laughs> well, hopefully it has something to do with my constantly pounding you about that at dinner parties, but maybe, maybe I'm being too too arrogant. I feel so left out that you guys are back there in Pittsburgh with dinner parties and all. I know. We need to, we need to, we need to fix ring. that. Yeah. It'll happen. All right. So, um, Ryan, one more question for you, and then and then we'll, we'll pass the baton. So, before the prosperity made possible by modern capitalism, did people climb mountains for fun? Yes. Why? Absolutely. <laughs> Uh, well, I mean, I guess then we would need to ask what fun means and whether, you know, fun is, is you know, is a modern experience that even existed prior. But yeah, Fair for, for play, for pleasure, I think that it was deeply integrated into some kind of religious sense of the transcendent, of the supernatural. Mm-hmm. But, you know, as anthropology knows, play finds its origins mm. and its and its ground you know, in the religious and the religious sense. And and so, you know, I think if we understand fun in those terms, then yes. Yeah. You know, that idea of play is written about by I got to think he's related to me somewhere because he has my same last name, yeah, Johan yeah, Heisinger, yeah. Homo Ludens, and you know, the man at play. So I tend to agree, even at my age, I go out on a hike to I don't know, just it fills me, right? Climbing a mountain, as little as it is that I do. Yeah. But but I would think in 1250, you'd be too busy plowing your field and staving off death to go for a hike in the mountains. Excellent right? point, Grant. No, you're, you're only working two thirds <laughs> of the days of the year on the, oh, on the, on the 13th century liturgical calendar. Uh, okay. All right. Yeah. Yeah. So those, what other, are you doing? those other you third, got... you're hiking Mount Rainier. <laughs> all, all of the other days are fast days or festival days. Mm. And so on a festival day, can you climb a mountain? I tend to agree with Grant. Oh, yeah. I mean, that's that's why, you know, there are crosses on all these mountains all oh, over good Europe. Point. So it would be more of a pilgrimage than a hike for fun, a conquering a mountain. Well, not not. So the conquest thing that may have always existed, I, I mean, it existed literally, as I've been uh, learning recently. I mean, in classical literature, as Jason Koenig, the classicist at St. Andrews, has shown, the number one place you're going to find mountain climbing is is in battles and in wars. So there really yeah. is, like, there really is that conquest element. But Peter Hansen, who I'm going to be interviewing for the the GenMod podcast in July, he has fantastic stuff about how you know the invention of climbing as a modern phenomenon in the 19th century was part and parcel of colonial conquest. Hmm. And so, but I, I think that the, the vast majority of climbing throughout history has not been for purposes of conquest, right? It's, right. it's been for these other kinds of spiritual reasons. Hmm. Hey, can I switch back over? Cause I read this article this morning, this morning, I woke up in the new Atlantis. I don't know if you guys saw it, 
It's called Surveillance Humanism. Mm. The Unholy yep. Alliance of AI and HR is Coming by Paul mm. Dickin. Both, did you read it? Yes. I didn't, but I can imagine what the article's about. Yeah. Well, and in it, so there, there's a lot of things that go on in it, but he talks about uh, Charles Babbage, who's technically the first computer guy yeah. who invented the difference engine, but that he's more famous for some economics principles. And they call it the Babbage principle, essentially mechanizing the sub-processes in complex operations to improve efficiency, right? And he calls this, quote unquote, a financially cutthroat extension of Adam Smith's division of labor and a forerunner of modern management practices of reducing labor costs by differentiating high skill and low skill tasks and paying workers accordingly. Grant, I know this is like a subject near and dear to your heart, especially in your recent work in the healthcare industry and the idea of, you know, how people get into that industry, but it's, it's low paying and we need more and these conundrums that we face. Was so, this the, the same piece that was also reviewing a book called yes. Human AI? Yeah. 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 HC, okay. in human-centered AI. Human-centered which is, AI, right. Yeah, which is, he claims, is kind of a, an oxymoron. Yeah. I mean, he doesn't say that word, but the, as I read into it, it's like, we're calling it human-centered AI, but what is it really doing? Right. It's centered so, around productivity. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. And efficiency. Yeah. yeah. And so I guess where I want to go with this is just to toss this out for, for discussion, talk amongst yourselves, privileging a mechanized view of efficiency as optimal for humanity at the expense of, of other biblical definitions of human flourishing. So what case would you make for inefficiency in light of that? Well, I mean, well, that's, that's a great question, but, but I do just want to mention, so a, um, alumna of Beatrice Institute before it was even Beatrice Institute, uh, went on, she was a civil engineering major at Pitt and went on and got a master's in Catholic studies at University of St. Thomas and wrote her thesis there human-centered logistics programming Ooh. and then and then went on to work at FedEx and she is a logistics engineer at FedEx and specifically working on how the drivers interact with the entire system of delivery mm-hmm. and her question was you know obviously we want this to be more efficient but what is it about the human the human worker that allows them to add value? And then how do we enhance things like freedom of choice in this process? So, and she's, she has a, I think it's forthcoming now, a a paper that specifically speaks to uh, these questions in terms of the Amazon Mm -hmm. uh, warehouses. So she's gone in and she's like, looked at that. And so that hers is actually, Christian Gautron is her name, hers is actually a human-centered approach to Hmm. workplace automation. And so I find it incredibly inspiring. Yeah. Grant, what do you think? My initial thought went to, I'd be interested to know who the the efficiency gains and the productivity gains serve Mm. and who they're accrued by, right? So it seems as though a lot of those productivity gains, there's this talk many, many years ago that we'd be working 20 hours a week and we'd be making the same salaries and have all this time for leisure. But what's actually happening in reality is all those productivity gains are being captured by capital, right? So what a lot of people don't realize is actually our our, um, the levels of inequality in 2022 rival and exceed the height of the Gilded Age, which was sort of seen is the most unequal time. So anyway, this would be my first thought. And to the extent that these productivity gains allow, you know, workers to have higher salaries 
and more leisure, I see this to be a good thing, but those productivity gains always seem to are owned by a capital. And I hate to be, you know, consistent, constantly Marxist <laughs> about this, but it's the same with the, with the conversation I had with, with Gabe, Gabe. Winant, where he talked about, you know, I sort of proposed that, well, maybe Lyft and Uber and the, the gig economy can actually be liberating to the worker, right? As they can kind of work when they want and they can kind of figure out, you know, they can kind of sell, sell their, their labor as they see fit when they want to, when they want to do it. But what the technology is allowed Lyft and Uber to do is be mercilessly precise about, you know, high flow times. So, you know, when there's, when, in order to manage the work of the employee and extract ever more of the profit from the workers. Mm -hmm. So where my brain goes with this is, you know, in the, in the question of making a case for inefficiency, it's the same question that I would say in, in healthcare, make a case for caring for somebody as they die, as opposed to simply trying to keep them alive. And yeah. or yeah. the other questions yeah. of the mechanized view of productivity makes humans into widgets and healthcare workers into care bots. And so I've just been thinking so deeply about what we lose by becoming so much more efficient and even the value of being interruptible in your day, saying, well, I didn't get my punch list done, but I was able to encourage a brother or sister. Yeah, you know, healthcare is actually tremendously, it's the one industry where you get more technology and you actually don't get more efficiency and lower costs. Hmm. And there's all sorts of reasons for that. But one is that there's, it's a service industry and it's so bound in humans being with other humans. And it, it, you're right, it, like, caring for someone, it's very hard to make that inefficient process. And actually, when you do it well, it's pretty inefficient. Mm. And so the case for inefficiency, I think was the, I think that's it. I think, I think that, that there's a loss of attentiveness in an ability to, to care in a slow way mm. when we're sort of ruthlessly efficient. I mean, ruthless efficiency, I think is good. You know, my, we have a friend, actually, Ryan, I have a mutual friend who's the deepest apologist for capitalism that, I, that I've ever met. And, you know, his whole argument is capitalism is the best system we've ever identified for creating efficiencies. Hmm. And so when you want to when when you want to get things done efficiently, it's the best system that we have, but the problem is there's so much of human life that efficiency should not be the right. should not be the aim. And there are some things like, you know, making televisions, which I think are making cars that I think efficiency might be a gain, but yeah. for you know th things like service and spending time with your family, those are terribly inefficient, but they're the good things in life yeah. that are meaningful. Yeah, I mean, it's fascinating to me that, you know, in this age of mastering efficiency, there's, you know, another key concept has been sustainability. And, you know, our, we were just talking with our friend and colleague, David Sanchez, who uh, who's the associate director of a sustainability institute here at Pitt in the engineering school. And, you know, he, he said that the he would describe the motto of the current dean of the engineering school as how do we improve the human condition? How do we improve the human condition, right? And if you back up that far, efficiency is not necessarily the answer. And so sustain it. So I, to the extent that sustainability is a competing or an enriching concept to efficiency, to I see that as potentially you know a, a positive sign. I mean, it's it's certainly a place in the mainstream academic and technological and maybe even cultural discourse where Christians can go and say, "Let's see what we can elicit here. Let's see what we can add." Yeah. 
And, and I actually think if, if my podcast is trying to do anything and my career is trying to do anything, it's trying to hold the human person at the center of all these conversations and realize that the person is actually the object of all of our inquiry, right? I mean, if anything else, our job should be to um, serve the human person and, and not the other way around. So that was the point that I was trying to make before. I, I don't think efficiency is a good or a bad. It's what, to what extent does this efficient process serve the inherent motivations and desires of the human person, such as mm. love and meaning and purpose and, you know, obviously the material sustenance of mm -hmm. food, water, and air, but how does it serve the totality of the human person and flourishing? And in many ways, I think that is what BI is trying to do. I think that's, I think if we had a, um, a broad goal, it's to keep the human person at the center of inquiry within the university. And in fact, Ryan and I and David realized that we all teach classes called happiness and, right? Oh, really? And they're all actually grounded around understanding how our own disciplines can better, A, understand the human person and serve the, the needs and motivations and desires of the human person, which I think that might be our contribution to the university if we have one. Mm -hmm. How many classes are there that say happiness and something? It's our three. Three? <laughs> I don't know. Maybe there are others. Yeah. Uh, it's a big university. But. That's fascinating. I, I don't think I've ever seen, and I've been in school a long time. Can't seem to quit it. So that's, I've never seen a class called that. I wish I'd have taken it. I think there actually is a, a larger nationwide trend um, mm -hmm. to do this, especially in the positive psychology movement mm -hmm. and psychology departments. And then there, are, there have been some really successful philosophy courses mm -hmm. that, that have done this. Um, yeah. yeah. So, Ryan, I, I had, but, well, if I, if I could just say, you know, so that the conversation maybe gets balanced out a bit more toward the hopeful, um, yeah. it's, it, it's that, you know, I think a lot of people recognize that the modern university is no longer a university. There's nothing unifying about it. And in fact, mm. it's kind of um, attained some of its greatness through specialization and siloing and, and, and so on. But I think within the secular university, the way to have a unifying telos once again would be precisely this. Yeah, I totally agree. How, how does this discipline, how does this research contribute to human flourishing? You know, it's not going to be the unifying focus of the medieval university, which, you know, began with God and kind of worked back to the right. human person, right? But it's, you know, to the extent that we see these things happening in the university, to the extent that we can encourage them, foster them, and work towards them, it actually makes sense as not a subversive thing, but a real support to what I think many people can agree is the unifying mission of the university. Uh, Ryan, Grant, did you have Grant any... Did you have scoot. any? Oh, he does. I was going to say, did you have any questions for Grant? Oh, questions for Grant. Did I not ask you any questions? Not one. That was because we're, we're going to have to do this another time. Well, you can ask me a few. I can, I can, uh, I can yeah. answer some. Yeah, I mean, I'm going to be late now anyway, so I might as well be a couple more extra minutes late. Okay. <laughs> what does soon mean? Yeah. Okay, so in your conversation with Gabe yeah. Winant, he talked about a kind of necessary dismantling of the modern family, or maybe not even modern family, but the family system, nuclear family, as we know it, that would be necessary to liberate women, to transform labor and capital and so on. And you, you made some very affirming noises to that. <laughs> and I, I'm wondering, you know, to, yeah. to what extent do you see maybe a modern conception of the human family as an obstacle to flourishing right now? Or, or is that something that you're just kind of, that you were charitably yeah. kind of listening along with? 
So after lots of conversations, I'm, I'm realizing I often say right, right, as in I'm following. And sometimes Ryan hears it as I agree with what you're saying. <laughs> so to the extent, here's what I would say. I would say that the economy in many ways is turning away from the traditional man, right? The guy who goes to work nine to five at the mill with a hard hat and a lunch pail. That seems obvious to a caring economy where it's certainly traditionally women's work, for what that's worth, you know, whether that's nursing or childcare, that seems obvious to me. So I'm going to get to, there's lots of layers to the question you asked, lots of layers to what Gabe said. So I do think that we need to figure out ways to include men in this economy. And I think that there's going to be a necessary way to include men in this economy, equips them to do jobs that they would typically not do, at least historically, whether that's being a nurse, I'm a male nurse, uh, or doing childcare work, if we want to include them sort of in, in the, in the what, what will, it seems to me to be the inevitable future of the economy, which is a caring economy. So to the extent that that is blowing up gender roles, sure. But I don't see that as blowing up gender roles. I mean, I, I, although I am much more sympathetic to the I do think that there's something natural about men doing thing things and women doing people things, although I don't take that very far, but I do think there's something to that potentially. So I do agree with Gabe in the sense that we need to reimagine what man's work looks like. I don't think that that necessarily is an explosion of gender roles. I don't see exactly... Go ahead. Is that partly because your sense of gender roles is is not particularly fixed and boxed in. Sure. You know, and I, you know, again, I'm a, I'm a male nurse who's, who, well, you know, I'm a very, you know, in many ways, I'm a very typical man. You know, I've taken on a role that is atypical. So I do think that, I think even within Christianity, there's all sorts of ways to be a man and there's all sorts of ways to be a woman. Now, I am very committed to the biological reality of of sex and that it determines our gender roles in a way that I'm I'm willing to talk about but I don't think that under I don't think that that is what I would characterize as a complete destruction of gender roles or complete destruction of gender as we yeah. know it. Can I go in on the nursing thing for a second with you sure. Grant? Yeah. Uh, simply because I did read the links that you sent me yeah. and you started to talk I've always wondered why there are so many acronyms in nursing mm -hmm. and it confuses me in terms of who's had more education than whom right. and so on you know is it an RN and LPN and a CNA and APRN etc yeah. but you're specifically talking right now about by the way what are you I'm a registered nurse with a BSN, although to be fair, I've practiced probably a total of six months in my life. Because <laughs> you have too much podcasting to do. Yeah, that's um, right. That's no, right. but so this thing that you've just addressed in a paper is this idea of the master of science in nursing or the mm -hmm. MSN has yeah. been a traditional way of kind of amping up your, your credentials, but mm -hmm. now it's being replaced by a doctor of nursing practice. And I say replaced, that's not what's happening, Correct. but there's a shift in the in the direction. And the study that you did, as I understand it, says, you know, is this a good thing or is this the right thing or how does this land? And as I understood your findings, it was like, not much. Right. It doesn't make that much of a difference. Why does it matter anyway? Well, so that so I'll give a little background. Yeah. Uh, there's a thing called advanced practice nurses, which have historically master's degrees and they do what we call advanced practice. So there's nurse practitioners, probably many of you have seen nurse practitioners. They do diagnosis and treatment, very similar to a physician. There's some difference in the orientation and the education between NPs and physicians. But in many ways, they'll, like a nurse practitioner will function in a very similar role as a physician assistant or a primary care provider or primary mm -hmm. care physician. 
This was a role that was that came out in the 1960s, particularly in rural communities in Colorado, where they really had an intense need for care for pediatrics patients, right? And so a physician and a nurse at the University of Colorado came up with this role called advanced practice, well, a nurse practitioner, right? Mm. And originally, it was a, cert- a certification, right, where you didn't necessarily have to go back and get another degree. You you sort of get a nurse who's been a registered nurse for 35 years. They're a great well of knowledge. We can mm-hmm. use them to do some of the things that a physician would do and expand access to care for rural kids. Over time, for historical reasons, the field believed that these nurse practitioners needed an advanced degree, a master's degree. Hmm. And that became probably the most smashing success for nursing education. Nurse practitioners were growing tremendously. They're being employed. Employers love them. They're filling a tremendous need for access to care in all sorts of different disciplines. Primary care, they're moving to specialty care now. But about 20 years ago, the American Association of Colleges of Nursing, AACN, passed a position statement that said that we should transition away from the MSN and move towards a DNP, a doctor Hmm. of nursing practice. Lots of logic. There's all sorts of disagreement about why that happened. One is that they had all these credits anyway. We should give them a doctorate. Physical therapy, OT, occupational therapy, we're all moving towards a doctorate. And now we can also be on par with physicians because we're all doctors, right? That's right. sort of the basic argument. But what's happening is as after folks get DNPs is employers don't really know what to do with them. Right. They're, they're treating them like nurse practitioners with an MSN, sort of doing the same role. I've always been a pretty vocal critic of this degree creep where you right. continually add credentials to nurses. There's well, no question. How much, how much yeah. of it has to do with compensation or oh, credibility? None. I mean, what is the driving force behind this? And do the people who put yeah. in these extra hours yeah. and get these degrees get return on investment? No, not so far. It seems as though the salaries are no different because employers aren't quite sure what to do uh, with this extra degree. Some of the extra degree goes into things like quality of care initiatives, Mm -hmm. policy, the sort of the classes that they take, but it hasn't turned into any sort of difference in wages or responsibilities. And I tend to be someone who thinks that, again, the MSN was probably the best thing we've ever done. It was a great thing for expanding access to care they're high quality programs. I didn't necessarily see the need to add another X number of years to was education. That a, was that a driving thesis behind your paper? Is like that's what you expected to find that it wouldn't make that much difference and that the current model was fine? Yeah, there's a number of qualitative papers that showed that kind of came to that conclusion. They interviewed employers. They didn't really know what right. to do with DNPs compared to MSNs. So I suspected we'd find this thing where the paper showed they had the same roles. They did the same kind of work. I have a paper that I'm finishing up that shows that they delivered almost identical quality of care as well to MSN prepared nurse practitioners. So that'll be another. And this is the first time anyone's going to study outcomes comparing MSNs to DNPs. So it's going to be a little bit of a a controversial paper within the small group of people that I talk about these issues. The one that I just read. Well, I know the next next one that will be coming out in a few months that shows. So it compares like hospitalization rates and readmission rates across patients that were cared for by DNP prepared nurse practitioners and MSN prepared mm-hmm. nurse practitioners. Because the idea is the DNPs will provide higher level of care because they're you know better trained and have more education. And the right. paper that I'm publishing doesn't find that. So this is actually speaking into the debate about whether this should be a continued 
practice or something. Yeah. And there's been a lot of support to sort of phase out like associate programs and diploma programs right. and, and push people towards bachelor's programs. There is some evidence that people cared for by bachelor's prepared nurse or bachelor's prepared RNs. So I'm talking about RNs now get yeah. higher quality care. But um, there's some talk there, you know, people want to do this with the DNP, phase out the MSN, have it only doctoral preparation for nurse practitioners. And hmm. I'm making the argument that it's a bit premature to do such things for nurse practitioners. So awesome. All right, guys. I know you've got to go. Right? Anything else? I have a lot else, but it's not going to fit into this one. I was hoping, hoping someone would ask me what I most want from the metaverse. <laughs> Ryan, <laughs> what do you most want from the metaverse? I want an entire season of Quidditch. Oh. Like an entire Quidditch league, an entire season, and I'll just get to, you get to float above and kind of like be part as much as you want. Do you actually have goggles and go in? No, but if they if they create that, I'll get them. Okay, that's your that's and I'll your, pay for it. Right, Grant. What do you want from the metaverse? Uh, mostly to be left alone. To be perfectly honest <laughs> with you, I mean, I I don't have a smartphone. I have no games. I hate Zoom. I can't imagine a scenario in which I'd ever want to be fully immersed in yeah. VR. I mean, life. Oh, here's the deal: is the world is so amazing. I mean, how do you ever plumb the depths of actual reality? Right. I mean. Actual reality is so rich and beautiful and complicated and lovely and wonderful and full of joy. I don't, why would we, yeah. why would we accept an alternative? To close the loop on this, back to your original question when we started, Ryan, is will there be computer bugs in heaven? I think heaven will be the ultimate metaverse and that all of the things that we experience with latency and bad graphics and stuff, that's actually what we're going to get in heaven is this amazing I just watched My Octopus Teacher mm. on Netflix, and it w took me to worlds that I list. couldn't have gone to. It's so visually stunning and surprising. But any, I think that's what heaven's going to be, and I don't care if there's bugs, if Although there's we'll octopus to, uh, and kelp forests. We might, have to, we might have to ask God to rebrand it because, you know, the metaverse is totally dystopian in every form. <laughs> so maybe just a rebranding would be... Uh, Heaven be called for. Heaven. Just call it heaven. Is, yeah, 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 that works. God that is works. the ultimate brand manager. All right, Gretchen, thank you. Ryan, Grant, thank you. Yeah, next one of these we'll have to do live in the same studio. I'm there so I can go to a dinner party in Pittsburgh. That's <laughs> on my bucket list. <laughs> All, right, All right, see All you right, later. Thanks, bye. Bye. Thanks for listening. If you appreciated this episode, please rate and review us on your podcast platform of choice. We love to hear from listeners. Chat with us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. You can also learn more about our programming at beatriceinstitute.org. That's beatriceinstitute, all one word, dot org. And if you are a university student or faculty member in Pittsburgh and would like to be involved locally, check out our fellows program and get in touch. This episode was mixed and mastered by Yellow Music and Sound. Until next time, I'm Ryan McDermott. Go with God. Oh.